0: Genesis 1, if you're a big fan of movies, then you might be familiar with something called the Marvel Cinematic Universe, or the MCU for short. Uh, Since the first Iron Man movie was released in 2008, there has been this explosion of Marvel superhero movies that have been coming out, like the Avengers, Spider-Man, Black Panther, Captain America, Thor, and so on, and all of them exist within the same larger storyline or the same universe. And so each movie is meant to connect in some way with all the rest of the films. Now, that's really cool. The only problem is there are 28 of these Marvel movies released at this point. I think I read where there are 11 more in the works and also the streaming series that are on Disney+, Plus, which all exist within the same MCU. And so the universe is getting bigger and more complex with every movie and series. Case in point, a couple of years ago, when the final Avengers movie, the Endgame, came out, one of my friends was like, Kyle, it's so good. you got to go see it, man. you got to see it. And I said, okay. He said, but before you go see it, you've got to watch some other movies first. And I said, okay. And he listed off like seven movies that were required viewing, or else you're going to be lost in this Avengers movie. It was like homework. Um, so many characters, so many different plot lines woven together. It's really hard to keep track of. Well, y'all, I'm here to tell you the, the, the MCU really has nothing on this book that I'm holding in my hands. I mean, I wonder if you've ever read your Bible and, and wondered to yourself, how many plot lines are there here? Have you ever been overwhelmed with all the different laws and the different tribes and the nations and the unpronounceable names that are in this book. Have you ever struggled to see how all of this connects together? Or maybe you've even wondered, does it connect at all? Or is it just, you know, 66 books that are kind of thrown together over the course of time? See, it really seems, if we're not really careful, we might think to ourselves, okay, we've got the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi, and it seems like the Old Testament is basically just a bunch of laws and sacrifices and tribes. God is always angry. I mean, it's pretty much the summation of that big chunk of the Bible. But then Jesus shows up, and now God's happy. And there's all this love and forgiveness that's ushered in when Jesus finally comes. Y'all, a lot of people view the Bible just like that. As this very broken up, form of literature where we've got this large chunk over here, that's about one thing, and then we've got this chunk here, it's about something different. Maybe you view the Bible that way. One person who did not see the Bible that way was Jesus himself. Jesus, there's a place in John chapter 5 where Jesus is speaking with the religious leaders of his day, men who knew the Bible backward and forward. Of course, at that time, there was no New Testament. It was just the Old Testament. They didn't call it the Old Testament, but it was Genesis through Malachi. That's what they had. And so when Jesus speaks of the scriptures, he's talking about what we call the Old Testament. Listen to what he says to them. He says, John chapter 5, verse 39, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. These scriptures are about me, Jesus says. A few verses later in John 5, Jesus says, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Now, Jesus has the audacity there to say that Moses, Moses who wrote the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that Moses was actually writing about Jesus. Jesus. Jesus says the same thing in Luke chapter 24. After his resurrection, he's speaking with the disciples on the Emmaus Road, and Jesus says that Moses and the prophets, which means the whole Old Testament, was really being written about him. It's all about him. Now, interesting thing, if you pulled out your phone to do a word search, you wouldn't find the name Jesus in the Old Testament. So how is it that Jesus says it's really all written about me? How can he make such an audacious claim about the Old Testament. Well, y'all, we're going to take this summer, between now and the beginning of August, we're going to do a little survey of the great storyline of the Bible. And, y'all, the goal of this is to help us to understand and to see more clearly that everything that makes up this book, the whole book, God is actually doing one thing, one great, decisive, unified work. Sixty-six different books, many different authors spanning centuries, and yet one uh, sincere thread that runs through all of it, God is doing one decisive thing, and the focal point of what God is doing truly is his son, Jesus Christ. What Jesus said, this is all about me, he really meant it. And the Bible affirms it. And so today, as an introduction, we're going to go back to the very beginning. We're going to look at Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. The Bible's very first page. And y'all, I just want to show my cards to us up front, okay? The first three chapters of the Bible really give us the essence of the whole thing. The essence of the whole story, not just of the Bible, but of all human history, is encompassed right there in the first three chapters. The biggest questions of all are right there. Who God is, who we are, why the world is such a mess, and what God has determined to do about it. All of it is established from the very beginning, and my hope is that we'll see not only the great storyline of the Scripture up front, but we'll also see Jesus shining brightly at every turn. Jesus is there, and he's prominent. He's the focal point, even from the beginning. So, y'all, this is going to be a very brief overview today. We're not going to get too much into the weeds. But three major storylines that show up early on in the Bible— plot lines that carry through all of human history. We see creation, we see what we call the fall, sin, and redemption. Creation, fall, redemption. Three of the great storylines in all of the universe are right here from the start. So look with me at Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, this all-familiar scripture to us. Moses records these words, breathed out by the Holy Spirit. He says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. The opening line of the Bible, which is the opening line of history, does not begin with bullet points concerning God's nature and character. We might prefer, I might prefer that. I'm a bullet point kind of person. I would have loved it if Moses would have begun the Bible saying, let me tell you what God is like. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's, you know, in in all the list of God's qualities and, and characteristics, right? Help me build out a framework for who God is. But that's not how the Bible begins. The far better thing is given to us. We're brought right into the very creative power and purpose of God. Moses begins the Bible with the assumption that God not only exists, but he's a certain kind of being, a certain kind of person. And y'all, right off the bat, there are so many foundational things that we can draw out of just these very early uh, uh, portions of the Scripture. We see up front there is one God, one God who created all things. That, that cuts across every culture and belief system at some point, right off the bat. One God, creator of all. And this is, this is a God we're speaking of who's not part of his creation. He's not in any way dependent Upon the creation, but he pre exists. He's eternal. He's all powerful. He's self sufficient. And so God did not create the world out of any sense of need in himself. And we see the power of God, so powerful that the exercise of creation is is written as, as, as if it's almost effortless. He speaks, and there it is. There's no sweat on his brow, as it were, as God simply speaks. And things begin to happen. And you notice how we, we, we're not going to look at all of chapter 1. But the very first thing God creates, I think this is, this is instructive. What does he make first? Let there be light. Right? And there was light. God spoke into being light. And he says the light is good. Now, you notice this is before God created sun, moon, and stars. So where's the light coming from at this point? Now, I'm not going to push too hard on this, okay? But we need to understand from the very first page of Scripture, we're not just getting insight into the development of physical stuff. We're not just getting a a sense of light and darkness, water and land, trees and animals. We're being told who God is. Not just what God has accomplished in, t- in, its, in its tangible physical forms, but we're being given an insight into who God is. It, toward the back of your Bible in 1 John, the Apostle John tells us something about God. He says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God is light. At the end of the Bible, literally the last page of the Bible in Revelation, The same apostle John tells us that in the new heavens and the new earth at the culmination and reconciliation of all things, there will be no more darkness there, John tells us. There will be no nighttime. It will always be day. It will always be bright. But not because the sun is shining. John says, God will illumine all things. The lamp will be the lamb. Jesus Christ will be the light of his people. So, y'all, it's fair to say, if we look at Genesis chapter 1 here, why is the light good? The light is good because God is good. Because God in his essential being is light. And so we're getting a sense already, not just of what God has done in his creative power, but who he is in his goodness and his nature and y'all, for the sake of time, we can't walk through all of it, the development of, of you know, the, the sea and the dry land and the, the vegetation and the animals. and you, know, it's, it's all, you can read it later. It's great stuff. But fast forward, if you would, to verse 26, where we see the crowning achievement of God's creation and the goodness of what he's made. This is verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This this is God's crowning achievement right here, the final uh, act of creation before he rested on that Sabbath day. The triune God, we see it, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit says, let us make man in our own image and in our likeness and let them steward the creation... And rule over it. Earlier before we sang, we read from Psalm 8 where David speaks of of this this amazing order to God's work. That when I I look at God, all that you've made and the wonder, the grandeur, the glory of it, what is man that you even think about us? And yet, you've made him just a little lower than God. You've crowned him with glory and majesty and you've made him to rule over the works of God. your hands. So y'all when we speak about God's nature, uh, his goodness in creation, and his creation especially of us, it's such an important uh, thing to, to, to stand upon that human beings, you and me, God didn't make us as things to carry out functions. We're not cogs in the wheel of creation, we are persons. And as persons, God makes us to reflect His own image. God designs us in such a way that we reflect something of who He is. And as persons, He designs us to have communion with Him. We are actually able to relate to God, to speak with God. Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden, the Scripture tells us. We have fellowship with Him and with one another because of our constitution. He's made us to reflect himself, and he blesses us, and he makes us fruitful, and he says, multiply, which is to say, multiply my divine image throughout all the earth. Now, y'all, I'm only going to touch on this for a second, but when we consider what we're being told in Genesis 1 as foundational to all truth, to all that makes up this world and our place in it, we see essential questions being answered that are now essential in our own day, questions of gender and of marriage, of the intrinsic value of the person, including the personhood that occurs within the womb, all these things that are very much hot-button political issues that are not at their root and foundation, they're not political issues. They're foundational to who God is and the order in which God has created us. And so for us to understand that God in his goodness and in his love ordered the world a certain way, it's our desire not to be politically expedient. It's our desire to reflect God's love and creation, his order, his goodness, which is on display just as he intended. That's why these issues matter to us. And they're not issues of, of political advantage. They're issues of how God has chosen to love the world, how God has chosen to give us our identity and dignity. That's why they should matter to us. So God God observes all that he's made, and he says it's good. It's very good, meaning there is no defect, there is no corruption in what God has created. It's all good. But then things take a sharp downward turn. We're all familiar with this story, I hope, right? And forgive me for being so brief on this point, Genesis 2 is so good, but I'm just going to give us the 10-second version of it, okay? God makes man, right, Adam, and out of man he makes woman, Eve, and he puts them in a garden called Eden, and it's paradise, and everything there is just delightful and wonderful, and man and woman have marriage, and they they have jobs, they've got responsibilities, they've been given so much privilege, and just one prohibition, right? Everything is yours, God says. It's all yours to enjoy. There's just one thing you can't do, just one. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil right there in the middle of the garden. For in the day you eat of it, God says, you will surely die. So y'all, there's something that should be understood up front. God didn't withhold anything from Adam and Eve. He gave them everything, everything, just one thing, hands off. Right? That seems like a pretty sweet deal, if you ask me. But we know how it turns out. And we could have guessed, even if we didn't have a Bible, we could guess how this turns out. Genesis 3. Look with me at Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent, we find out, of course, that this is Satan, was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Uh, Satan pulls... Quite literally, the oldest trick in the book. This is the oldest trick in the book. Did God really say? And you notice how he twists what God said. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree? Which is a ridiculous uh, uh, twisting of the command, right? And Eve corrects him. Did her no good. She at least understood the validity of what God had really said. But, but Satan initially, immediately casts doubt on God's word, on not only the truthfulness, but the sufficiency of God's word, which Satan still does, by the way. It's something he's quite good at. But he doesn't stop there. He also casts doubt on God's character. It's not just did God really say, but Satan begins to unfold this new narrative for Adam and Eve. He basically says to them, listen, God is lying to you. He's holding out on you. God really just wants to keep you under his thumb. He wants to keep you stupid and ignorant. But you don't have to do what he says. You you can know what God knows. You can be like God. So in essence, the temptation here in the garden is, you can take God's place as the master of your own life and fate. In fact, you should take God's place. Because he doesn't really love you. He doesn't really want what's best for you. He's holding out. And y'all, this was so very appealing to Eve and to Adam both, and so they ate. And as an aside here, this is the essence of all temptation. Every temptation that the devil would delight for us to consider and then enter into is, is given to us in its purest form right here. What we're seeing in picture form in Genesis 3 is the root problem Uh, of, of the entire world. I mean, every problem traces itself back to this one central idea of man substituting himself for God. This is the problem with the world out there, and it's also the problem with me, by the way, and you. This is the problem with our own hearts. Is that I believe that somehow there is a life and a joy and a fulfillment to be found outside of God, and I must pursue it if I really want to be happy. Or that I will substitute myself for God because God does not have my best interest at heart. And I want to be the captain of my own ship. I want to be the author of my own story. And so y'all, listen, you can trace every single sin in your life back to this one. Our refusal to trust God, to love and worship Him, to obey Him and delight in Him. That's the root of every sin. Martin Luther said, you can't You can't commit any sin, you can't break any commandment without breaking the first one. You shall love the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me, God says. Commandment number one, that's the root of all sin, is putting anything, including me, in God's place. That's what Eve and Adam did. That's what Satan desired for them to do. And that sin, of course, has devastating consequences. We're going to address this more next week. We're going to talk more specifically about Adam next week. But y'all, Adam and Eve did more than just breaking a rule. They ushered sin into the world and death through sin. And so what God promised them, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. On one hand, we look at that and say, well, they didn't die. You now They were excommunicated from the garden. They were made to, you know, to work against the ground now and to have cha- uh, pain in childbirth and all, all manner of sins, uh, you know, c- uh, the, the curses of sin. But they didn't die. Right? But if we're willing to look beneath the surface here, there, there's something very obvious that, that has happened. When their eyes were opened and they felt shame and they covered themselves and they hid themselves from God, y'all, humanity in this moment became severed from communion with God, from fellowship with God. Years later, when the Apostle Paul... Wrote down Philippians or Ephesians, rather, chapter 2. He qualifies it by saying, We all are dead in our trespasses and sins, in which we walk. We walk, meaning we still live, and yet we are dead. We are alienated, severed from the life and fellowship that God created us to enjoy. We're under the curse of sin now, all of us. That's the fallout. Of Genesis 3 and you can read if you want to read through Genesis 3 you get a sense of what these curses are uh, entail and what they include but but since this is an overview and we're, we're short on time uh, we, we see the fall I hope for what it is and we experience the fall personally and corporately as we consider our place in the world right it's one of the undeniable things about what the Bible communicates to us we might doubt some things in this book perhaps this is one of those things that's beyond doubt, that the world is fallen, and hopelessly fallen, as much as it is up to us to fix it. And therefore, God must intervene. And so, these great storylines that we see already forming in the Scripture—the creation that God produces out of His own goodness, the fall, which is uh, which is um, uh, which which progresses from the heart. That rejects God and His goodness and sufficiency, we need redemption. We need the next great storyline to be introduced. And y'all, what God promises concerning death and curse is immediately followed up with a promise of redemption. And this is this is something that might be, um, it might come as a surprise to us. Remember I said a moment ago, if we can, if we think of the Bible as, okay, we've got a long, we've got two-thirds of this thing is. Is, is just bad. It's, you know, it's, it's a lot through, lots of sin and law and sacrifice, and God's just mad all the time. Uh, and so we fast forward to Matthew where things get good, where, the, where, where redemption shows up, right? We need to recognize that's not how the Bible's written, that redemption is in the heart of God from the very beginning. Right here in Genesis chapter 3, look at verse 15. God is, is pronouncing curses upon the devil, and the Lord says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, y'all, for years and years, I wondered at a verse like this. What in the world is God talking about? The seed of the woman. I just assumed that was... that's. Speaking of humanity generally, uh, the the head and the heel, you know, it's it's very strange language, but y'all think about it with me for a minute. Who is the seed of the woman that will one day crush the head of Satan? This is Jesus. Jesus, who will himself be bruised on the heel, which is to say, Jesus, the seed of the woman, will suffer himself, but he will not be defeated. That wound will not be final, and ultimate. In fact, we find out as we read through this great narrative that only through his suffering will Jesus overcome the works of the devil in crushing his head and reigning supreme and victorious over him. Y'all, the great redeeming purpose of God is displayed for us right here. Right on the heels of the fall, God sends the promise of the seed of the woman who will one day crush the head of the enemy and redeem those under the curse of sin. And so, y'all, if, if, if we think of, of, of the Bible in the way that I've mentioned, it's all bad news until Jesus shows up. Then we come to this perspective of God, where God is up in heaven scratching his head, thinking, good grief, I thought the Garden of Eden would work. Everything was perfect, everything was good. What happened? And then we, as we keep reading, we think, well, okay, the flood, that, that, surely that's going to work. Get it right back down to the essence, you know, of the good people, Noah and his family. Well, that didn't work either. And so I know, I know what I'll do. I'll raise up a man, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll write some commandments on stone, and now the people will obey me and worship me. Well, that didn't work either. And God's just, all throughout history, God's up in heaven scratching things off the whiteboard as they are tried and they fail. And then finally, after the prophets fell through, God says, okay, okay, Jesus, you go down there and figure it out. And Jesus did. And God, you know, whoo! Right? Y'all, that's not the story of God. Redemption, the redemption of God's image bearers through the sacrifice of God's dear Son was baked in from the very beginning. In fact, the Scripture tells us, and this is a mystery beyond my figuring out, but that Jesus Christ was slain from the foundation of the world. That is to say... The sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the redemption of sinners was in the mind and heart of God before the world existed at all. This was not God trying to figure out plan B. The redemption of human beings, sinful as we are, through the sacrifice of Jesus, this is God's true and ultimate always plan for the world. And so, y'all, as we close, I realize it's summertime, but I'm going to assign a little homework. And this is not something we typically do here at Harvest Church. We don't try to put a lot of burdens on one another, but I, I want you, and this will not be a burden. I promise you, you'll enjoy this. Take a half an hour this week, all right? If you do it, I'll do it. Take a half an hour this week, open up your Bible, and, and read in detail what we only surveyed today. Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Take you 20 minutes. But then next to it, I want you to read John chapter 1. You've got Genesis 1, 2, and 3 right here. You've got John chapter 1. Right here, and I want you to read them in concert one with another, and then just make a few notes of how it is, in John's words, that Jesus is not only the focal point of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, but also the fulfillment of it all. This creation and fall and redemption story in John 1, of course, it's all through the Bible, including just about every page of the New Testament, but only in John 1. If we we only had John 1, the first 18 verses, we would have enough to go on to see that Jesus meant what he said. All of this is about me. All of it points to me. All of it finds its fulfillment in me because we see in John 1, I'm going to cheat for you a little bit here, okay? We see in John 1, Jesus is the one creating. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know how John 1 starts? In the beginning was the Word, capital W, that's Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being by him. Nothing that was made was made apart from him. Jesus is the creator. And then we see in John 1, just a few verses down, that Jesus is the divine light, capital L, the divine light, that shines in the darkness. Jesus is the one ultimately who separates light from darkness because he is the light. The light is in him. And then if we keep reading John 1, we see that Jesus took on flesh for himself, the fall with all of its consequences. Jesus enters in as human flesh. He becomes as we are, yet without sin. Jesus enters into to fallen humanity. So rather than forsaking sinners... Which is, if I were God, that's what I would do. You had your chance, you blew it, you're out. God who made the promise of redemption, the seed of the woman that will crush the head of the enemy. Jesus enters in to dwell among sinners that he might be our redeemer as both God and man. And we see that by redemption granted to us in Jesus Christ, we are now reconciled back to God. We are born of God, born again, no longer dead, an alien to God, but now brought near to his heart. All of that was baked in from the beginning. I just did the work for you, but do it for yourself, okay? <laughs> Genesis one, two, and three, John chapter one, make a few notes and just sit back in wonder in awe. God, from day one and from before day one, God had it in his heart to redeem us. We can't blame Adam and Eve for all our problems, right? It's in my heart too. I follow the same pattern of my parents, Adam and Eve, just like you do. But God in his redemptive purpose, God in his grace and kindness and love promised a redeemer. And because he did, we may now know him as savior and Lord. This is the good news baked in from the very beginning because God is good. He is light and in him, There is no darkness at all. So we can celebrate, as those who are the Christian church, we can celebrate that the light has come into the world, that we might no longer remain in darkness, but have the light of life. It's all about me, Jesus says. Thank God. Let's pray. Father, I I pray this morning for our hearts, that, Lord, we would see um, in, in these ancient scriptures, Lord, we would see the narrative, the story, that, that, set, that tells us everything we need to know, everything about the world, everything about us. Lord, you have declared from the beginning Everything, Lord, that we we need to know and, and delight to know about you. That Lord, in you, there is no darkness. In you, there is no defect or corruption. Lord, the darkness is what we have brought in, what we have ushered in. And yet, Lord, even in our sinfulness and our rebellion, your heart was for redemption. Lord, your heart was to bring from the seed of the woman a man who was God, a man in every way like us, yet without sin, who would live the, the, the perfect life of righteousness, Lord, and fulfill all of your righteous law and command and suffer and die for us. So, Lord, that we might be counted righteous, that we might have life in his name by faith. Father, thank you that, Lord, you didn't, uh, you, didn't, you didn't hatch this plan uh, on the basis of our worthiness or our good potential. You knew, Lord, that we would fail. You knew, Lord, that we would need redeeming. And, Lord, you, you out of the, the fullness of your heart and grace, Lord, you poured out your great plan, your son. And so, Father, as you, as you have declared to us and I pray, even just as a taste we've seen this morning, it's all about Jesus. It always has been. Lord, would you make that true for us? As we consider the word of God, our Bibles, as we consider our lives, That the focal point is Jesus. He, he deserves center stage. Lord, he, he has the spotlight. He deserves all of our affection, all of our trust, all of our hope and joy should be centered on him. The light of the world. that we might no longer live in darkness because he's given us the light of his life. And so, Father, um, I just I pray make it so that in, in, in my divided heart, in my fickle heart, in my, 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 in my so often my weak faith, I feel like, Lord, give me a, a clear and bright picture of Jesus Christ, who has always, always, always had our redemption in his heart and did everything to make it so. Lord, let us look to him with the eyes of faith and let us thank him this morning that he is the very center of all your good design and purpose from before the world began. Lord, we thank you and we love you. In the awesome name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.